be good to have a, a unified church in which there is no disagreements on doctrine, in which uh, the, the way that church government is structured, uh, that it would be the same whether or not you worshipped here in Mora or whether you were worshipping over in, in Beijing, China. However, with a singleized sent with a single centralized government of church, it, it, it lends itself to the possibility of corruption. And it lends itself to the possibility of not only the seduction of power, but also the abuse of power. And perhaps most dangerous of all, a unified church, if they don't get what God's word says correctly, a lot of people are not going to get God not going to know God, and not going to be with God. And now Martin Luther, he was an Augustinian monk. And the Augustinian monks were known as the strictest of all the groups within the Roman, uh, the monastic groups within the Roman church. Not only did they hold to a strict regiment of, um, of understanding of moral duties, but they were also... The academicians, I didn't know that was a word, it actually is. The academicians of the church. They were the ones that were studying theology. They were the ones that were teaching in seminaries. They were the ones that were sent out to go and fill the pulpits of local towns to teach uh, the, the, the doctrine. Martin Luther was an exceptionally bright Augustinian. Uh, he mastered Latin, Greek, and Hebrew with very little struggle. Uh, and he was regarded as one of the highest teaches, uh, teachers in the order. But Luther also had a very soft conscience. He was keenly aware of his deep sinfulness and God's great holiness. And as he continued to progress in being a, a monk, can I say in his monkness, is that a word? As he, he progresses in that, um, he grew more and more uneasy. And one of the requirements of the Augustinian order was to go to confession on a daily basis. And so what would happen with confession is the monks would go to the priest that was overseeing them, and they would confess their sins, and then the priest would give them some sort of penance, which means some sort of activity or something to do in order to be forgiven for the sins that they had confessed most monks would go in there for five minutes, maybe ten minutes. Martin Luther's conscience was so heavy that oftentimes he would be in there up to an hour or two confessing everything that he had done in the last 24 hours. One monk, uh, one of the priests had actually uh, said that there was one time in particular where Martin Luther was in the confession room for more than six hours confessing his sins. It got to the point when his confessor said, Brother Luther, why don't you come back when you actually have something worthy of confessing? But that didn't help. Luther could not escape the reality of his sin and his inability to do anything about it. And when someone, when anyone lives in that sort of mindset, where you understand biblically and in your heart that there is absolutely nothing that you can do about your sinful condition, one of two things will happen. 
either you'll live in complete despair of yourself and you will begin hating yourself because you cannot attain those standards or you will hate God and see him as a monster and because he sets up these expectations that you cannot follow. That was the case for Luther. Later in life, Luther professed, I was myself more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished that I had never been created. Love God? I hated God. So what was it that changed in Luther? How did he go from an eccentric, depressed, an angry man against God to the one that ignited the Protestant Reformation and changed world history. It was rediscovering what he found in studying the book of Romans. It was in the book of Romans, particularly the first to the third chapter, that Luther discovered something so liberating, something so freeing, that not only did his hatred of God completely disappear, but Luther was then uh, willing to risk his life by defending what he found in Scripture in front of the most powerful people in the world, the Holy Roman Empire. So what was it that he found? And what was it that has ever since changed the hearts and the lives of people? It was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has truly done for us. And this morning on the 500th anniversary of what Luther uh, did, we're going to take a look at that rediscovery and see how it applies even to today. And it's still worthy of rediscovering and reapplying, defending and celebrating. So Luther's discovery then can be boiled down to really two things. The first thing is to stop trying. Stop trying. The first two and a half chapters of Romans are really quite devastating. In these chapters, Paul doesn't leave anybody untouched here. In chapter 1, he makes the argument that all non-religious people are without hope because though the truth of God is plain in creation and they can see that it's obvious that there is a creator and that he has power, they choose to suppress that knowledge and rather twist it into a perception of a God that fits their own purpose. So the non-religious person, though they may not admit it, their objects of worship are things like money, sex, power, fame, reputation, things. Maybe the image that they see in the mirror and so on. We live in a world quite like that today, don't we? How many, well, I guess it's not only teenagers, but how do we see the vainglory of what we worship a lot? A lot of it is, look at the selfie culture that we live in. How many times have you seen walking around somewhere that's, that's worthy of it, and you see someone whip out their phone, and they, you know, they give the surprise look? <gasps> or perhaps the backwards piece? Or my favorite, the duck face? You know what I'm talking about? We live in a selfie 
Driven culture. And Paul goes on to say that there are consequences for this, this suppression, this distortion. And they're quite staggering because uh, basically Paul says that God's response to this suppression and this distortion, uh, this uh, uh, judgment, if you will, is not to bring them in. It's to give them over to it. It is to let them wallow in it. He says, in effect, all right, if you're going to worship these gods, if this is what you want to worship, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it to your, to your heart's content. And so there is then in the non-religious person this degradation that tends to happen. That when God gives them over to sin, um, and Paul lists a lot of them, a non-exhaustive list in, in, in chapter 1, Things like homosexuality, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slandering, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We all fit in there somewhere. And when God gives us over to that, we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into it. Because though they may be a joy to them, these are things that they really enjoy, God gives them over to them, and it just leads them into further bondage, even in their joy of those things. It's sobering to realize that one of God's vehicles for judgment is simply letting people fall in love with their sin. That is a sobering thought. In chapter 2, Paul turns to those who claim to be religious. And he says, look, you're not off the hook either. Because whereas the biggest problem for the non-religious is suppression, the biggest problem for the religious is presumption. It is presumption that can really be boiled down to behavior. The religious mindset says, God is with me, because I hold a certain set of values, a certain set of morals, I, I act a certain way, um, I, uh, I have certain friendships, I have a certain political affiliation, so on and so forth. But Paul says in chapter 2 that if you're religious, you have absolutely no right to claim yourself on a higher level as anybody else. Because you're just as sinful as they are. Maybe not in the same way, or perhaps in the same way, and you just hide it. Take, for example, a congressman the other week who was well known for being a pro-life advocate, and when his mistress, the woman he was having an affair with, became pregnant, he asked her to have an abortion. Think about the, the pro-marriage pastor a number of years ago who was busted for propositioning young men. You see, it, it's incredibly easy for someone who bases their religious security in their way of thinking and their public behavior to look down and judge others who don't sin in the same way or judge others in order to relieve their own conscience for doing the same things. Your public or even your digital identities cannot give you any 
superiority in God's economy. Verse 11 sums it up like this. For God shows no partiality. And so we enter into chapter 3 now, and we are getting to the heart of Luther, a man that lived with a guilty conscience and internalized what verse 9 says. Look with me here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And he realized that there's absolutely uh, no hope for anyone if salvation is based on how good you are. And look at how Paul lays out the effects of sin here. And and he's quoting the Old Testament here, by the way. Verse 10, um, none is righteous, no, not one. So in this statement, he's saying that sin has affected our legal status with God. We can't enter into God's courtroom and claim a case. If none is righteous, then no one has a case for innocence. Verse 11, he notes that our minds and our motives are effective. It says no one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, our wills have been affected. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now we're going to push pause there for just a second because notice the totality that Paul is is driving home here. That no one is exempted from this. He uses the words none. No. Not one. No one. No one. All. Not even one. That's all-encompassing. That's you. And that's me. Verse 13, he describes how our tongues, how our speech has been affected. Uh, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, which is a snake, by the way, is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And isn't it true that though the tongue, James relates this in, in in his letter, that the tongue is such a small part of our physical body, but yet how much damage does our words do to people? In verse 15 through 17, Paul lays out the the effects of our relationships, that their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And so Paul is not talking here about uh, our feelings being hurt by others, but rather he's talking about the painful destruction that we do towards other people. We have hurt people in our lives. And finally, Paul lays out in verse 18 the root problem of all this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no awe. There's no reverence for the glory and for the goodness of of God. And not only that, is there no reverence or awe, but there's really no fear of God's judgment I love what, uh, what Albert Moeller in his chapel address last week at, at Southern Seminary had mentioned. Uh, he, he had said that in our day-to-day, we don't talk much about the fear of God. And in our evangelical churches, we don't talk very much about hell. And in fact, not only do we not talk about hell, but we also don't talk about heaven very much either. And you know why that is? Because we listen to watch and buy into too much of Joel Osteen's theology. That we are living our best life now. And forget about what is going to come. 
There is no fear of the Lord. Paul closes his chilling argument here by appealing to any of those who still want to hold on to that residualness that we have a stake, that we have a piece of the pie here in goodness. Look at me in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So, the purpose of the law is not what we often think it ought to be. It's not a checklist by which we ought to attain. Well, I can do this, I can do that, I can do that. I haven't killed anybody, I haven't cheated on my wife, I haven't done this, check, check, check. We're good to go. Rather, it is a... Um, it is a way for our ever-justifying mouths to excuse our ways to be completely shut up and have absolutely no excuse in front of God. And so it is that if we take this passage seriously, and we ought to, as Luther did, it ought to leave us initially in utter despair. And if we take these verses seriously, we ought to see that we have to stop trying. The more you try, the worse it gets. We cannot earn God's approval. We cannot earn his favor. We do not get out of hell because of our goodness. All we deserve is judgment. So we need to stop trying. And it is in that place right here that Paul has us right where he wants us. Because it's in verse 21 that the words have turned the world upside down. And from 21 on, we ought to learn that we need to stop trying and secondly, start trusting. Stop trying and start trusting. Verse 21 starts with perhaps the most hope-filled words of all of Scripture. But now. But now. Whenever you see those words appear, especially in the New Testament, you can guarantee that good things are going to come. I once put a Facebook status update about the words, but God, and how they're incredibly hopeful uh, in Scripture. And there are a number of statements that say, but God, but now. And I had somewhat of a comedic friend tell me, well, maybe you should do a sermon series called Big Butts of the Bible. <clears throat> that would be lovely. But I think I'll just leave it at that. Um, in, in this instance here, Paul is shifting from hopeless to hopefulness. Look with me in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Okay, so this is basically what 
what Paul is, uh, has been laboring for for three chapters now on our moral bankruptcy and our inability to do anything uh, worthy of being called good in God's sight, he now says that the righteousness that we need, the goodness that we desperately need, doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from outside of ourselves. It comes namely in God's very own righteousness. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, the very goodness of God is given. God's perfection is attributed to us. Theologian Tim Keller writes this. He says, righteousness is validating is a validating performance record which opens doors. When you want a job, you send in a resume. It has all the experiences and skills that make you, you hope, worthy of the position. You send it in and say, look at this, accept me. Your record has nothing on it that disqualifies you from the job. And it had, you hope, everything that will qualify you. Every religion and culture believes it's the same with God. It's not a vocational record. It's a moral or spiritual record. You get out your performance record, and if it's good enough, you're worthy of life with God, and you're accepted. And then Paul comes along and says, but now, and for the first time in history and the last, an unheard of approach to God has been revealed. A divine righteousness of God, a perfect record is given to us. No other place offers this. Outside of the gospel, Keller says, we must develop a righteousness and offer it to God as, and say, hopefully and anxiously, accept me. The gospel, however, says that God has developed a perfect righteousness and he offers it to us and by it we are accepted. This is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel, and it reverses what every other religion and worldview and every human heart believes. Now, that's quite a statement. But it was what set Luther's heart blazing. And it should for us, too. Uh, in verses 23 through 26, Paul he restates his point, and then he explains how it works out. In verse 23, he, label, he, he labors again uh, to remind us of who we are. Look in, in verse uh, 23 here. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, th this is a side note. Um, the word sin in Greek is an archery term. And to sin literally means to miss the mark. So if you are in a, an archery competition and you bend your bow back and you shoot the arrow and you want to hit the bullseye and it goes out just a, a couple of the other stripes, you don't hit the bullseye. That's called sin. You missed the mark. Now Paul here says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So Paul is essentially saying that in our moral capabilities, we wind that, arrow, that, that uh, bow back, we shoot our moral arrows. Not only does it miss the target, it doesn't even come close to the target. It falls and hits the ground. We miss the bullseye and we come up short. Our arrow falls to the ground before we get anything that's even of any point value. Now, verse 24, Paul gets right back into the, into the gospel. And he says, and are justified, justified by 
his grace, as, by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. The word justified, that's a legal term. It doesn't mean that you're excused for what you've done. It means that you're exonerated. It means that you're let go. You're, you're set free. You've been found not guilty. How? It's through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, that's an awfully big word. Propitiation. But it means to absorb or to turn away God's wrath. So what Paul is saying here is that when Christ hung on the cross, the wrath of God that we, you and I, deserved for everything that chapters 1 and 2 lays out here is placed on Jesus Christ. Every single sinful word, thought, Indeed, that you have ever uh, done was taken from us and put on Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, the perfection and the righteousness that Christ had was given to us. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. What a crazy transaction! And it's transferred to us through faith or trust. It's probably the most unjust thing that has ever happened. The most perfect person ever getting justice. And us sinners going free. But it wasn't totally unjust, though. Not in the way that we think. Justice did happen. Look with me in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, no sin will go unpunished. God will have justice. It just depends on where justice happens. Either it happens in us in eternity for not taking the offer or it happens in, on Christ on the cross. So therefore, God can be both just, justice is satisfied, and he can be the justifier because he's given us his very own righteousness. I like to use this illustration. Imagine with me that you committed some sort of capital crime, uh, murder, um, rape, uh, treason, something like that, uh, maybe even grand theft auto. And the evidence is clear. You're guilty, you go before the, the, the judge, and you're not getting out of this. And the judge brings down his sentence and says, you have a fine of $50 million or you're going to be going to jail for the rest of your life. And you think and you know your bank account and you know you don't have that kind of money. You don't have that kind of credit to even get that kind of money. You don't have any rich uncles. You don't have any rich aunts. You don't have any friends that can bail you out in that sort of way. You know that you are going to be spending the rest of your life locked up. And then... All of a sudden, someone runs into the courtroom and throws $50 million on the judge's desk and says, this is for my friend because I love them and I want them to go free. My hope is that you would be grateful to that person for throwing that kind of cash down. And I hope that you would also see that justice is satisfied. A fine needed to be paid. And this person paid it they endured the penalty for you, and justice was satisfied. 
That is exactly what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. You owed the penalty, and Jesus paid it on your behalf. And because his righteousness was given to you, God can welcome you. God can accept you. Not because of who you are and what you have done, but because of who Christ is and what he has done. And that was amazingly good news to Martin Luther. And it's the best news that we can receive. So whether it's 500 years after Luther's rediscovery or whether it's right here and now, we need to stop trying. And we need to start believing. And maybe you're here this morning and you're like Martin Luther. You're having trouble escaping your past. Or maybe you're dealing with some things right now. Or maybe you're here today and you're, you're wondering what life is all about. You feel empty and completely lost. Or maybe you're having a season of struggle and you're not sure how to get out. The same uh, remedy is for all of those things. It is trusting in Jesus Christ as your righteousness. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And I want to invite you to pray with me. And if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, if you want to receive his righteousness and walk out of this place completely free of what would come, I invite you to come to him this morning. And if that's you, I'd like to um, help you get your faith started on the right foot. Uh, come find me after service. Connect with me sometime during the week. And we'll get you going with Christ and what he's done for you, who deeply desires you to grow and to know him. But for all of us, we need to stop trying and start trusting. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your great gospel. Lord, we thank you so much that the reformers around that time rediscovered it. Lord, for without their keen eyes and, and without your directing them, without their boldness and their sacrifice of willing to die for this truth, we would all still be lost in our sin. And so, Father, we thank you for them. We thank you for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Father, if there's anyone here that needs to come to you this morning, maybe for the first time, maybe re needs to come back to you, Lord, would you send your spirit to them? And would they pray right now, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I realize I have no hope in and of myself. And I want to cling to you and I want to cling to your cross. I trust, Lord Jesus, change me, make me new again. And Father, help us all to be living a life that stops trying and starts trusting. And it's in his precious name that we ask this. Amen.